Welcome to Dear Hiring Manager, the podcast where we explore the ever-evolving world of tech recruiting. I'm Jacqueline, the CEO and co-founder of Hatchways. In this next season of Dear Hiring Manager, I'm going to deep dive on the other side of recruiting from the lens of hiring managers and recruiters. We're going to talk about challenges, solutions, best practices, learnings, insights, and opportunities that lie ahead in the industry. These are influential leaders in the tech recruiting space, bringing you their unique perspectives and actionable advice to help you learn and stay ahead of the curve. Just before we get started on this episode, we'd love to quickly introduce what we're doing here at Hatchways. At Hatchways, we're on a mission to redefine talent discovery by prioritizing skills and potential over pedigree. Through our customizable tech assessment platform, Hatchways empowers companies to efficiently identify and hire exceptional candidates while providing equal opportunities for job seekers to shine. If you're a company looking to create a more real-world hiring process, provide a refreshing experience to your applicants, or capture better hiring signal, visit hatchways.io to learn more. Now, without further ado, Let's dive into today's episode of Dear Hiring Manager. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Um, so we're just going to do a high level on job kits, technical interviews, and recruiting in general. Um, what about we do quick intros? How do you guys feel about introing each other? <laughs> Sounds good. I'll introduce uh, Jean-Denis here. I met uh, Jean-Denis when I interviewed him. What year was that? 2013. 2013. So almost a decade ago, I gave him a strong no on the interview. Uh, <laughs> he had used a incredibly non-pragmatic programming language and seemed very into himself and very French. Uh, it turned out I was wrong. Uh, this was actually probably my, my biggest mistake in an interview panel uh, in history. I had totally misread the situation. He actually did a uh, much more realistic uh, exercise. We gave him a take-home exercise, which is something we were doing back in the day at Dropbox. Uh, he completely knocked it out of the park and uh, quickly rose the ranks from uh, senior software engineer to director of engineering at Dropbox and then uh, joined Plaid. What year was that, Jemini? 2017. In 2017, uh, as the VP of engineering and now is the CTO at Plaid and has adopted uh, many of the interviewing practices uh, around take-homes and whatnot uh, to ensure that no candidate is left behind uh, at Plaid, like I almost left behind Jean Denis. That's your intro. Great That's a good story. Intro. That's a good intro. Um, yeah, so Tito, um, uh, Tito's a CS major out of Harvard, um, and he went to work uh, at Facebook uh, out of that school. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, I don't know, how, how many years were you at Facebook? Three years? Uh, three, three and a half years. Three and a half years. Uh, followed one of the VPs over at Facebook who had become um, either CTO or VP of engineering at Dropbox. And that person's the first hire they wanted to make. Uh, kind of for Dropbox and was was I believe Tito. There's a startup story in there where really you 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 were going to be like founding engineer at this person's startup and then and then they decided to sell the company almost immediately to Dropbox and and kind of which is how I snuck into Dropbox without actually interviewing. Interestingly enough, um, but because this is a panel on recruiting, I know that uh, uh, Tito recruited like his TAs 
from his classes at Harvard to become engineers at uh, at Dropbox. And if you ever if you ever think you can't ever go back in time enough for your network, like you know you know you're you know you're good at recruiting when you're recruiting people who are more senior than you and and who viewed you as like a lowly student. I think he accepted uh, think his offer actually before I formally accepted mine to Dropbox, oh. which put pressure on me because I had recruited him there and I hadn't, I certainly hadn't started yet. I forget exactly the timing of it since it was about a decade. So you recruited him there before you accepted basically. And then yeah. he, he accepted and then you had to go. Okay. Yeah. Then I was, my hand was forced at that point for sure. Yeah. yeah and so Tito was my boss at Dropbox. I'll always remember, like initially I didn't report kind of to him, but eventually I did. And I think one of his first moves when I reported to him was to send me the interview feedback that he's that he'd written about me, <laughs> which you know had been a like do not a strong do not hire, um, which is like kind of interesting power move. But we had a good enough relationship where I found it funny. Um, yeah, and then he was. Uh, I think I, I would think it was with the context that I had never been more incorrect about an interview in my life, which I still feel is the case on that particular interview. Yeah, you la you landed it well. You know, Tito ran uh, all product engineering at Dropbox, which is you know, 200, 250 people. I think he was you know a leader that didn't just do the engineering side, but really leaned heavily on, on the product side. Um, he had a really great ride there, and I think at some point decided he wanted to help grow a, a company from small to big uh, and a joint segment, I believe, in the fall of 2015. Oh, very uh, good. Yes. Um, and so he, he joined that company. It was pretty small. I think it was like 10 to 15 engineers, maybe total. You know, And so going from you know managing 250 to, to 15 and wanting to go that that whole journey again is uh, it's like a you know, it's really wanting to go back to, to what it's like to be scrappy, kind of build segment out to be, you know, a multi-hundred uh, engineer um, business. And as part of that kind of ran over different periods of time, engineering, product, design. And then after the acquisition by Twilio, I believe was like a, a GM for like a, a business line over there. Um, and then about a year and a few months ago, uh, despite much desire by his employer at the time to keep him there, decided to become an entrepreneur and has been building out a company called Koala, which uh, um, if you've got a sales team and you're doing SaaS, uh, you 100% should be using. Uh, and, Thank you. Yeah. That's what an intro. Part. Great intros. Perfect. <laughs> no, this is great. Um, okay, maybe we just start with high level painting the picture on like, what is a job kit and why do you need one? Yeah. Well, okay, I'll answer the question, but I think I think if you want to be great at recruiting, you need to have real clarity on what kind of person is going to accelerate your business. And it isn't just like a generic, really smart person that would have been hired by Facebook or Google or Airbnb. So a job kit is just like kind of a forced exercise for you to have clarity around one, like the kind of person that's going to be successful in the role that you need. So you're being really specific about like, what's the role, what's needed for the role, what kind of a, a person's going to fit that, where might I find this person? Like, what are the kind of companies that I might look at? And then finally, how am I going to evaluate them? Right. And, and you try to lay that out early, uh, you know, ahead of time so that you can, you know, force yourself to be disciplined and fair and efficient in, in how you get to that hiring decision. But I think, you know, the more specific it is to what your need is at that point in time, like the more effective it is. That's the high level for me of a job kit. Yeah, I think that captured most of it. Maybe the one other thing I'd throw in is like, I just imagine for a second, you were about to buy a vendor that costs $200,000 a year. 
and just like think about the diligence that would go into like hire like hiring that vendor and uh you know purchasing that software you wouldn't just like copy paste a different vendor review that happened and like tweak a couple of small things and just be like okay let's ship it let's spend this two hundred thousand dollars a year and i think what blows my mind about a lot of hiring i see is it is really okay like let's copy paste a job description from stripe let's like ask a friend like roughly how they do interviews from this other company and like let's uh plop it down let's start hiring uh you know 30 minutes later and it's just like it's an incredible thought to me that you would spend that much money per year with so little thought put into it. And I think a job kit is kind of the home for all of that thought, all of that clarity to, to Jean-Denis' point about what it is you're even looking for, how to market the role, how to pitch it, how to ensure you have a, a fair process that gives everyone uh, a chance based on true merit and true needs of the role. Uh, and then, you know, a really uh, great rubric that actually tests what you're looking for. And I think you know, spending a day or two really thinking through the job kit, iterating with other employees you trust to get to like great clarity is both awesome for faster hiring outcomes, but I think even more important than faster hiring outcomes is better hiring outcomes. And I just don't see uh, a lot of new hiring managers spending nearly enough time thinking through the strategy of what they're even looking for, uh, given the amount you're about to go likely spend on this employee. Mm. That's a great analogy. And when when people think about a job kit, how do they think about it per role? Is it like a single job kit per role? Is it a single job kit um, per role and level? Like how does somebody think about the breakdown of that? I mean, I've typically tried to do a job kit for pretty much every human we are hiring uh, just because, you know, every single human we're hiring is, probably a, at least a $150,000 investment, if not significantly more. And I want to put in the time and effort. Uh, I will say occasionally you really want to hire, you know, five new grads that are all, you know, at the kind of entry level, level one. Uh, I don't know that it's incredibly important if you have like a program like that to do five separate job kits there. So occasionally you can approximate but I really would push as the default assumption is every new person that you are bringing into the company, uh, you really should do a job kit for. And if you really are thinking of it as like, hey, we want to hire five of this exact profile as part of the fall season, you know, of or summer season of like new grads uh, coming in and that recruiting usually starts the fall before, you can occasionally approximate it. But I think default should be one job kit per hire and uh only on occasion would you simplify it. Perfect. Um, and Jean-Denis, maybe you can talk a little bit about what is the most important thing about creating an interview rubric and kind of what goes into that? Oh. Well, I think this goes even maybe back to the idea of the job get. I think the what I've seen go wrong the most often with a job kit is you write it, you put it together, and then you don't actually use it, honestly, in terms of how you're screening folks along the way and how you're evaluating whether they're going to be successful at your at your company. And I think when I say you're not being honest with yourself, it's like you meet someone who's really smart, but they don't have actually the skill sets that you wanted in the job kit. And you convince yourself like, oh, I'm going to move beyond the hiring screen to the interviews. And then, oh, I'm going to 
you know, or they like do well in some part of the interview and not others. And you're like, oh, I can manage around like that area of the person. I'm still going to move them to final round. And so like that almost always is a mistake. Like you can, you can maybe cheat one time and happen to be lucky and, and get it right. But that just means you don't have a process that aligns with what the business needs. And so that's the, the most important part about an interview, <laughs> interview process is that it goes back to the most important dimensions of a job kit, right? And, and a job, a good job kit will have like four or five criteria that has like must have for hire. And then like a few more that are nice to have. And if your interview questions don't objectively allow you to really determine whether people have the must haves, then you don't have an effective, you know, interview, interview process. And, you know, the, the, it's very expensive to have custom interviews, right? And so I don't mean that for each person, for each job kit, you would have totally different interviews. That doesn't, you know, that's not, I don't think feasible, right? Because you come up with a new interview, you have to test it a bunch of times. You have to make sure you have an objective rubric. Like it takes time to do all of those things. But I think you can still, when you're looking at the feedback of an interview, you look at the feedback and you're like, hey, how does it connect to the dimensions that we wanted at the job kit? And make sure your interviewers kind of fill the gap. So if you have an interview that, you know, tests, I don't know, architecture and uh, the ability to use like a known set of technologies, right? And then um, in the job kit, the thing that's important is architecture, but not actually using a known set of technologies. Maybe it's using unknown technologies. That interview is only good for evaluating like one of the points that you have in the in the job kit. And so you should be aware of that and you shouldn't let someone who says, oh, this person was really great at using like blah, 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 blah. If that's not something that's important for the job kit, you kind of have to be able to have a debrief panel that ignore, I mean, ignores not maybe a hundred percent, but really like, you know, soft plays that part of the feedback because it's not what you're looking for in the role. So, so that's like the high level in terms of the specific kind of interview process, right? You, you need objective criteria. Like you, you need to get to a point at a question where you've, from answering the question, you can determine the dimensions that you want or your job get in a way that if you have different people do the interview, you're roughly going to get the same results. Um, you don't want it to be like based on whether someone likes the person or whether, right, like things that are very difficult to look at and be like, hey, objectively, this is this this aligns with the dimensions that we need. Um, and the way you do that, honestly, is you you have to um, you have to determine ahead of time before you design an interview what you're hoping to get out of it, and then you have to put the interview through like training cycles, right? You have to use it internally on your own employees and things like that until you're sure that it's a good interview. And that just takes time, right? And I think if you're a small startup, I, I, I give this piece of advice, which is a weird piece of advice, but I say like, when you have a new question, the reality is until you've asked it out of five or six candidates, you're not really sure if it's a good question. You're not really sure if it's getting you, you know, the feedback that you want, okay. which kind of sucks for a candidate if you happen to get a new question. But that's like the reality of this of this okay. world is like you need to put these things like through through a few cycles until you're sure that they map to the dimensions that you're looking for. And then the final thing I'll say that I think people very rarely do, but it's very important to do after you've hired the person, like two to three months later, what you should do is you should look at whether they're successful. You should look at the job kit that you use and you should look at their interview performance. And you should use that to decide whether you need to be better at like the kind of interviews that you use and the kind of job kits that you put together. And it's really difficult to have that kind of discipline. And you probably don't need to do it for every hire, 
But if you don't have this kind of feedback cycle in terms of how people are actually behaving on the job, then you're never going to be able to have, like, I think a world-class, you know, interview process. No, that's great. Tito, anything to add on that? Uh, I, I would just add, I, I think like the must-haves is just the most important thing, like really getting to clarity. Because you, you can always think of 15 things that you really, really would love and you can like design the most like unicorn hire. And like, that's easy to do. Like anyone can do that. You go mm -hmm. like to a whiteboard and list all of the perfect things that may or may not exist in a single human. I think where the challenge is, and Jean-Denis said four to five, I, I actually used to tell my hiring managers they get three and no more than three must-haves is really kind of creating clarity on like what that sort of minimal, most important things are. And I certainly don't mind having like some nice to haves. And I, I think you can round out other parts of the interview process to like other things that you'd love to have. But I think really getting to clarity on what the essence of the role is, um, it's just, it's an easy thing to gloss over. And it's the most common mistake I see with, with job kits. And when with like a new hiring manager, who's just learning about hiring is just not quite forcing clarity enough. And then I see a lot of people start the interview process. And so they'll start spinning up like the recruiting engine and they'll, you know, give the recruiters like what to go shout out of their megaphones with like what the pitch is. And what happens if you don't really have clarity on what you're looking for is like, you'll still attract candidates into the top of the funnel. Probably you'll interview a ton of candidates. The interview pass rates might be like pretty good for the first interview to the onsite. And then what you'll find is you're just going to be rejecting you know, 95% of candidates after the onsite and the 5% you do pass through uh, probably have 17 other offers anyway. And it leads to this really inefficient situation where you're burning out your eng team and the most valuable people on your eng team are typically the ones that you have uh, doing the hiring. And so it can just be like a really sad situation that quickly burns out the entire engineering team. And I think that whole root cause is actually because you don't have clarity on what you're looking for in the job kit. And so like, I know there's like a lot of text here in the job kit, but if I could say there's one thing to really focus on, it's getting to super high clarity on those three must haves. And then to Jean Denis' points, making sure that your interview rubric, rubric, excuse me, actually tests mm -hmm. those three must haves. Uh, I think that's like where most of the magic is. There's a lot of other good stuff in there. Uh, but to me, that's the most core thing. So, so, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I, I just want to make like another point on on like accept rates. If you have a really good job kit, it also means you're going to be much more effective at selling the role. It's mm -hmm. not like, oh, I need generic smart person. Like you're a generic smart person. Like go do generic engineering work or product work at my company, right? It's like, look, we have this big opportunity and to capture it, we need to build these kinds of things mm -hmm. and with these kinds of skills. And that's who you are. That's what you have. And that's why I know you're going to be successful at my company. And so it, it helps doubly. It doesn't just help you like filter out from your end, but it, it helps with the cell and it increases the likelihood that they're going to recognize that you're the right, that you're the right mm -hmm. place for them. Right. Um, and that's a really important part of efficient recruiting, right? Efficient recruiting isn't just like, I'm good at evaluating. It's I'm getting these people excited to come mm -hmm. and have impact at my company. Right. And so the, the, the really good job kit succeeds at, at doing both. And, and you know, the way I think about world-class recruiting is, is it's not about hiring the like 
you know, 5.0 GPA MIT grad that, you know, went to work at like Facebook and then Stripe. Because the reality is like every company is going to give that person an offer, which is messed up. Like that's not great. It's not great for diversity. It's not like a great statement about how recruiting happens in the Valley, but that person will get a job everywhere. What you're looking for, right? Like since you're also going to make an offer for that person, there's no benefit to your business to making an offer to that person. The real benefit is if you find folks that are right for you, that a lot of other people might not quite realize why they're amazing for you. Right. And if you can do that, if you can find those people, then you're more comfortable, like giving them more equity or going really hard after them in the hiring process. Right. And so th that's like, like that's the essence of what they're recruiting. It's like bi-directional and the job kit gets you the confidence to go after them. It gets them the confidence that they're going to be successful at your company. It allows you to differentiate how you hire versus the market. And that's how you succeed. And those hidden gems also perform 10x better once they get there because they have a chip on their shoulder because yeah. they didn't get 17 job offers from everyone. Yeah. And they want to prove that the bet you made on them was an amazing bet. And so the best folks I've ever had have been slightly surprising hires if you just looked at the paper resume, but it was through this like high clarity job kit on what we're looking for, this awesome recruiting process that actually let them show their best skills as opposed to like pass an SAT exam type interview. Uh, those people way outperform uh, the people that you think have the best looking resumes. And so I think this is a really important point. Uh, it takes more effort, it takes more thought upfront, but it leads to way better long-term outcomes, uh, both for the, the people finding jobs, but also for your company. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we see that all the time with early stage startups. It's very easy to copy just how the big companies are doing things, copy how they write the job descriptions, copy the interview questions, and they don't realize that the person who's going to excel at a Google is not a person who's going to excel at an early stage startup. So putting that extra effort up front will make a huge difference. Um, to, so to just simplify that for someone like it, so if we have the three must-haves, three or four must-haves, and you're like really clear on that, does that just translate into the rubric that you're measuring? Or is it that you have the must-haves, then you do another level of thinking about how do I measure those must-haves? And then those the answers to that turn into the rubric? Or how do you translate the must-haves to a rubric? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, experienced hiring managers can look at those must-haves. They can look at maybe a set of interview questions they already have that are calibrated questions. Uh, I would say often maybe two out of the three must-haves, you're just going to have sort of off-the-shelf questions that like overlap fairly well and you'll be able to use them. Sometimes you'll be like, ooh, this role has like a little bit of a different flavor. Like this role really requires partnering super closely with user research and design because of like this particular spike needed or like this um, particular role really would do well with amazing kind of go-to-market partnership uh, because of this, this, and this, uh, or this role really needs like a spike in um, sort of experience with billing infrastructure systems uh, to think about Jean-Denis' uh, first role at, at Dropbox, uh, it had a little bit of that, that spike to it. Um, and so I think often it's like you have your rubric, you're going to take a couple questions off the shelf, it'll be pretty easy, but then you kind of do need to design you know, one question to go to the go-to-market team and say, hey, we're really trying to make sure that th this person is going to be an awesome partner to you. Can we brainstorm a new question to make sure we're really doing a great job sort of checking that 
must have off uh, as part of the interview rubric. Um, so that, that's kind of how I think it turns out in practice. As John Denis said earlier, I, I don't think you want to be designing your entire interview rubric from scratch every single time. I mean, if it's a totally different role than you've ever had, you might be forced to do that. Um, but usually you're taking a couple of questions off the shelf that are pretty calibrated questions and you might be designing, you know, one to two uh, questions to test particular things that are a little bit more unique about this particular role. And so, okay, imagine that the person is hiring for the first time for a new role and they have this rubric and they have interview questions they believe will measure the rubric. How do you determine a pass rate from this rubric? You start in, until, do you have to just do that after you start interviewing people or how do you know like what is great look like? Yeah. Well, how do you know what a strong no is versus a strong yes? There was a technique I really liked. Uh, Peter Reinhardt, my boss, who's the CEO at Segment used to do this. Uh, he did, whenever he was hiring a new executive, he would do batches very intentionally. Uh, and the thing about um, hiring a new executive is obviously you are, you know, let's say you're hiring a VP of marketing, you are sort of by definition creating a brand new loop. So what he would do is he would uh, kind of go out into the market for four weeks and just, you know, have do the referral thing and the VC thing and just talk, talk to as many people that he thought was really good. And he would say, hey, batch week is going to be uh, April 15th. Uh, two weeks from now, uh, the recording of this video, um, let, we're going to do everything the week of, of April 15th for two weeks. And so that would get him, you know, six or eight candidates that he would be sort of all evaluating at once. Uh, I think if you can pull off something like that, that's going to give you, you know, somewhere in the four to eight candidates range, uh, that'll be really, really helpful because in that debrief, uh, you'll be able to have a, a whole bunch of calibration sort of against the entire batch. Uh, so where possible, I, I do think batching, especially while you're early, is good. And then often he would hone from there, like what, what the setup was and what we were really looking for and kind of where the bar is on these various questions. Uh, and then from there, he could he didn't need to batch forever. Uh, but I think that's a really good technique when you're calibrating is to figure out a path to, to get at least four people uh, doing the interviews so that you can uh, figure out where the bar is. Yeah. If it's a really a new role, you. This is what I was trying to get to before. Like, even if your first candidate is the right person, you're not going to have confidence yeah. that it's the right person. So you really do need to get like enough people come in on over a short period of time that you can look at that whole pool and and make that determination. I, I think it's obvious and and implied in what Tito said, but like should be the same interviewers, right? That are on a new role that are talking to all the folks so that you you accrue knowledge and you can make the tweaks to the interview loop as you learn, right? With the same set of people that are all on the same page. I think it's also great if it's a pretty diverse batch, not, not just in, in terms of a particular uh, definition of URM, but diverse in terms of backgrounds, like some more startup backgrounds, some more like large company backgrounds. You're trying to understand like sort of a lot of different angles of how people approach uh, the problem as well. So that was always, that was always a place that we really wanted. I mean, we obviously always wanted diversity uh, at segment, but I think we made an extra special effort for these initial batches to make sure we were seeing a lot of perspectives. Sorry, I cut you off, Shani. Yeah. And I was like, you should play with your pass-throughs, like for, for a more mature like role where we're still writing different job kits, but the interviews themselves, like we use many times before, usually the pass-through weight for, for, for me, like kind of gold standard would be 
at least 50% of people who do the phone screen end up the phone screens end up going to onsite, right? And then maybe 40% of the people who go to onsite end up getting an offer and then trying to shoot for an accept rate at 70%, right? And the thing that you generally vary a lot to like get to that is, is the phone screen interview and the hiring manager screen that even gets people on the phone screen. Like that's how you think about it. If you have a new role, right? You should put more people into the phone screen and you want the phone screen ideally maybe even to be two interviews so that, or or even you let more people through to the onsite at first, just to force yourself to learn about the entire interview loop. Like, so you shouldn't have too predetermined an, an opinion about what the early like signals are going to be because you're, you just don't know enough about that kind of candidate. So you do that, you're basically flushing more folks through the system. Obviously the overall pass rate is going to be lower. You're trying to get the learnings until you feel enough confidence that your interview loop is going to match a whole bunch set of job kits that you're likely to have in the future. And then you lock it down and you try to get to you know efficiency, which you know different companies will give you different percentages, but I think often like 50, 40, 50, 50, 40, 70, like something like that is, mm-hmm. is where you want to be if you're really good. I would say we were actually probably more like 50 from phone screen to onsite and then maybe 70 from onsite to offer, uh, at least with pretty experienced hiring managers. And then, yeah, I agree some, somewhere in the 70 to 90% except rate is, is pretty world-class. Um, but if you start dipping below 50 there, you're going to, you're going to like do some math on how many end interview hours there are per candidate getting accepted. And you're going to realize you're, you're burning out the team. So definitely that uh, accept rate is an important one to keep an eye on just because the implications of how many hours you've spent with candidates to get them to that point who aren't accepting uh, starts to really bum out the interview team. How do you guys think about like when you're grading somebody on the rubric, is it that the person needs to have pretty much a four or a strongest on every area or sort of higher for strengths where one is a standout? Like, how do you think about that? Because I heard you guys talk a little bit about spikes earlier. So tell me a little bit about how you think about that. I, I, I've i always wanted to see definitely not strong yes across the board. I, I don't think that's uh, realistic. I mean, it's awesome when you can get it. And uh, definitely that means, hey, we're really excited about this person probably stretching a bunch on comp and other things to to see if we can close them. I think I'd like to, I'd like to see sort of solid yeses across the board. Ideally one spike in an area that's pretty important for this role. I think if there's a weak, weak no, or even a solid no, like we've hired those people. I think those no's really are important to kind of do more diligence on. Uh, Maybe it's a no, but the interviewer is like, ah, but I'm not sure I got amazing signal here. And then in the debrief, you say to yourselves like, okay, how could we go get amazing signal to see if this really is uh, a sticking point that we should uh, pass on the candidate or or see if it is actually something that, you know, a reference check or another interview uh, could could really help us, um, you know, sort of reverse that, reverse that decision, reverse that concern. Um, but yeah, I would say like average interview is probably mostly solid yeses, you know, ideally one spike in an area that's important and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that if you see a no or two, it's necessarily a deal breaker. I think it's probably necessarily like worth double clicking into and figuring out how you can get more signal. But again, a lot of those kind of best fit people, like what John Lee was talking about earlier, do have a little bit of a, you know, weird resume gap or something that is not incredibly obvious uh, 
to other uh, hires why it's it's not a huge issue and and often a little bit more effort actually investigating, especially if there's things you're really excited about uh, them having uh, can go a long way to to really finding those hidden gems. Yeah, and I think you're also asking on a per question basis, like you know how do you even determine what the rating is per question? So. Mm -hmm. Um, the way I view the interview process is you've got this like diamond, right? And you're trying to determine like if it's real or not. Mm -hmm. And everybody should look at the diamond from a different angle and and ideally just from their angle. So I, I think bad interview questions or interview questions where it's like, oh, coding fluency and breadth of knowledge and depth of knowledge and architecture and like comfortable with their environment and they're good creative thinkers. And if... I've seen rubrics where it's like literally you're you have like seven dimensions that you're kind of rate and then you ask the people to like average or something like that and I'm like an hour is so little time already to evaluate a human being like you can't do all the things so I think a great question tries to get at like one thing or two things like fundamentally right and and you really ask the interviewer to like hey focus on objectively determining if that thing is there the thing you're supposed to care about Obviously, once you get in the debrief, there's a more open-ended conversation and one person might have in a different interview, like a piece of data that speaks to something. But the questions at the end of the day, they should be, they should be objective and it should be easy for people to know, like, what am I supposed to test here? And then on that dimension, like, is it a higher, strong, higher, world-class, weak, no, blocking, super blocking, or whatever, whatever you want to have. Um, and you design your questions not to go after a bunch of stuff. You know, I think the place where you you where I've seen also a lot of danger is on you know what people call like soft skills, mm -hmm. right? It's like you're you're doing an interview where the it's like real about a lot of technical depth and the person's super stressed out and they get in this mode they're not talking that much to the interviewer and they're not asking questions and blah 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 and then you see the interviewer go out and they're like oh they got two thirds of the of, of through and that would be like a that would be like an you know like a weak yes. Right. But they didn't ask me any questions. So I'm going to like knock them on soft skills and be like, hey, I'm not that excited about the candidate. Well, I think that's just bullshit because that interview isn't an interview about soft, soft skills. That's not what you're trying to get at. Like, if you care about soft skills, like design an interview that is about soft skills where the candidate knows it's about soft skills, where you're like, you know, giving him a fair chance to, to evaluate. Because otherwise, people are going to have these like five minute data points on a bunch of dimensions that they, you know, like kind of convolute their thinking. And that's not, that's not good. That's not fair to that human. I mean, the whole thing already, like we haven't talked about referrals, but the whole thing is you spend five, six hours with a human being and you have to determine whether this is the right job for them for the next, like, you know, however many years, five years of their life, six years of their life. That's already so reductionist for a human being. So I just, yeah, I think you, you have to know what you, what you care about. And then I'm just going to go to like, references and things like that there's lots of problems with references and like and referrals right so referrals is like upfront and reference check afterwards is if you if you hear something i will tell you on on like as i've been in the valley more and more i find like references that is people on my team having worked closely with somebody being like a really really powerful signal there's one big problem with it right is that it's super biased in terms of it reinforces the biases of whatever your team has today, right? It's like an anti-diversity dimension. Um, but there's a lot there. You have people on your team that have worked with somebody else for one year and two years. And if you trust that person on your team, they can tell you a lot about how what that human being is like. And I think 
you know, for a long time, I didn't, I, I didn't weigh that as much as I, as I do now, but now I really, I really think, especially for small companies, it's like a, it's a huge unlock for you. And if your interview process is telling you some things that are very different than the upfront reference, you should really be asking yourself, like, like what, which is more likely to be wrong. Yeah. It's like my interview process that resumes somebody after seven hours or what one of the engineers that I really trust tells me about someone that they worked with, like shoulder to shoulder for two years. Um, so if, if you see that disconnection, like double click on it, uh, because I, I think probably you, you need to rethink how you evaluate. You, you just touched on actually a really amazing benefit of the job kit that I want to double down on as well. Uh, once you have clarity on what it is you're looking for and you have clarity on the rubric, one of the really nice things you can do is you can actually share that with your candidates before they come on site. Um, because really, you're not trying to create a high pressure situation that's designed for them to fail. Ideally, if you are, maybe you should rethink that before you continue the hiring process. You're trying to give people a chance to put their very best foot forward and uh, kind of succeed as much as they can. And so, you know, just like you would never uh, be in a closed environment situation where you couldn't look up any of the uh, common functions or common libraries in your programming language, I don't like to put them in situations where I'm testing them on that. It's just not a realistic problem that is interesting signal. And so, uh, you know, we, we would say things like, hey, we really want you to be comfortable. If you have a laptop with a great development environment, you can bring it in and use your own laptop. If you don't have one, but you have a development environment you'd like for this pair programming exercise, we'll do our best to accommodate it. Please you know, write about what you'd like to be installed on our loaner laptop, uh, and we'll do our best to, to accommodate that. Um, things like that, things like, hey, we're looking for great communication uh, on this one. We're looking for you to um, really demonstrate how you would solve a whiteboard architecture type interview here. And we're really curious to see how you gather requirements before diving in, you know, on this one, we'll be judging by how much like code gets written, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can only do that though, if you have a great job kit and clarity of what you're looking for before you go in there. And if you find yourself sort of like writing that rubric in the debrief after, which I've seen many times, it is really time to go revisit that job kit and pause recruiting until you get to clarity uh, on all of that stuff, because it's not fair to the candidates. It's not fair to your engineering brand. It's not fair to your team of interviewers wasting time. Uh, and this is the kind of clarity you're looking for in a job kit before you set out to do the hiring. I think you were, when you were talking, it also reminded me of another benefit of a job kit that I think a lot of early stage startups make the mistake on is that sometimes they interview someone and they didn't have a job kit and they realize, oh, wait, maybe I should interview some, I should, I should evaluate another thing. So they add another interview in after, and then they add in another interview, but then that ends up being that sometimes you, there, you have one candidate who went through six rounds of interviews and, and one that's gone through three and that's just a completely unfair evaluation. Yeah, um, it's a really choppy process. Let's say you wanted the one, uh, the candidate who did the six rounds, like probably by the end of all of that, they're like, these folks don't know what they're looking for or, <laughs> whatever. And like, I'm not going to go work here. And do, yeah, it's a great point. There's like fairness issues there. There's candidate experience issues yeah. there. Uh, there's inter your own interview team issues. So it's just sort of across the board, uh, yeah. not a great situation. Something I want to ask about, because we talked, John didn't kind of brushed on like soft skills and kind of measuring and kind of maybe a five minute, like, you know, signal that you might get. How does gut play into making a hiring decision? 
So I, I really think it's very important to rubric all of the soft skills stuff and really steer people away from gut. This takes quite a bit of, of training and uh, experience, I think, to, to really get good at it. Um, but, you know, there's sort of this famous concept of like the culture interview. And I've heard many renditions of the culture interview, like, oh, would I want to like sit next to this person on a flight or would I want to grab a beer with this person? Uh, I think those are like pretty disastrous. You're almost certain to like reinforce any uh, any biases you already have as like a company and a culture. And you're you're basically shutting down sort of welcoming kind of new perspectives and, and fresh perspectives and different backgrounds uh, by doing something like that. That doesn't mean culture is not important, but what we've really found for these more soft skills type exercises is you ask yourself like, what are the values at the company that are most important to us? Okay, cool. We have these four values that we tell every new hire on their first day. These are the four values. How do we come up with hard questions that have a rubric like hard meaning objective, uh, although they can be challenging as well, uh, but objective questions that have a rubric that tie back to our values. And so we, we did that for all four of our values at Segment. Uh, we had questions that had right and wrong answers in the sense of like a really good uh, example and a, a less good kind of answer. And um, we would try to get rid of the gut by really forcing people to write in their interview notes, specific examples that showed either uh, examples of the value in action or, hey, I asked them for 25 minutes about this and I kept sort of like leading them along the path. And I just, I have no concrete stories to tell you about a time this person uh, exhibited like really strong ownership and initiative on a project. So I'm going to say like, there's a, a flag here that we need to, you know, uh, is a no for now, unless we can find uh, examples of, of stories in some other means. Um, but yeah, I think as much as possible, it, it's important that it's objective. Uh, and I think when you when you have uh, some humans got the interviewers got involved, uh, not in a way that's objective, uh, you're just sort of asking to let bias sneak into the process and uh, you're gonna just get less fair and, and probably less good outcomes. I'm like plus a thousand on, on all that. I'll, I'll add a couple of things. One area where I think gut is okay is the hiring manager screen. I mean, I think a great hiring manager in part, it's like their ability to identify talent from very, very few signals. But again, the hiring manager screen for me is you don't get a rating out of it, right? You just get a like moves to the formal process or not. So that's the one, one place where I think, you know, with my experience hiring managers, I, I think it's okay for them to, you know, if they see something in the human being that's like they think it will fit the rubric, they're not 100% sure, like they want to put the person through or they hear something that like doesn't, they're like, hey, my experience tells me like, I don't think this is going to go in the right direction, like at the margin, right? Because they're making a 50-50 call anyway. Like, you know, I think that's the place you 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 can be okay injecting it. After that, um, I don't think it works. I, I, I have a an anecdote, which is like, Recently, uh, one of my function leads sent me a list of all the people we hired in their function of the last 12 months and wanted to show me that they like had, they were often right. Meaning whenever they had like rating of high, like it turned out to be a person that like did well while at the company and, and things like that. And like, I looked at it and I was like, like, this just doesn't scale. Like 
you know, you, you have a sample of like seven things, like the, the math doesn't, I was like, let's, the probability like doesn't work out. Like the odds are actually like, this is just like small, small number selection bias that's happening right here. So now you imagine a company where you have like dozen hiring manager or like whatever, and you have people thinking they can make calls on soft skills based on their intuition, like good luck, mm -hmm. right? That's going to go all over the place for you. And then the, the third thing, this is like a newer thing for me. I'm less and less of a believer actually in the in the soft skill interviews. I, I agree with everything that that um, Tito said on like ask for specific examples, be really upfront with the person ahead of time about what are the what your values are, what you're looking for. But there's there's like two issues that I've noticed. Like one of them is so I, one of the things I care about often in soft skills like introspection, like ability to understand what you've done well and not well in the past, and being able to be self-critical. It turns out there are um, groups of people who have a lot of trouble with that because in society, those groups of people aren't really treated well by America largely uh, if they aren't always succeeding, right? And so it's like to get to where they are, a lot of it is about putting up the like best version of themselves day in and day out and not admitting that you can fail or whatnot. And so like, even though from my perspective, I want to find introspection, people may be very introspective, but even if you tell them before the interview, like, well, I want you to admit to failure, like, it's okay to admit to failure. Like, I'm trying to find out how you, you know, how you think about like what you could have done better. It's really hard for a set of folks to do that. And so there's like inherent bias to this thing that I wanted to do. And so now I'm like, you know, I just don't, I don't go there nearly as much because I realize it's, it in of itself is going to like skew my the set of people that I can bring in. And then the second thing, this is a, not naming any companies, but like I've seen companies have um, really want to build collaborative cultures. And so have soft skills really around like how people diffuse conflict and how they work well together and how they build consensus and all that. And it sounds really nice on paper. Like it sounds awesome. Like, oh, no assholes culture, all great. The problem is if you build a company with just those folks, you eventually get to a place where no one's making hard decisions. People internally aren't calling them out themselves out on bullshit and a bunch of other stuff. And so if you do a soft skill interview, you got to be really, really careful about what happens. Not, not like the first five people that are like that, but when your whole company has a, a certain way of thinking, like that's could be really good for you, but it can have really bad unintended consequences. And so I think, you know, obviously you have a culture and you define it. Right. But I think you can define it. And once people are your company, they see different the modes of behavior that lead to success and they naturally align with them. Like that's a much better to create culture, in my opinion, than than to like to evaluate it so strictly in the interview process. Like people are flexible. People are smart. People will adapt. If you take someone who worked in culture A, then in your interview process, they're going to reflect culture A's values. And if you have culture B's values, then they just won't do well with you, but it doesn't mean they couldn't adapt and be very successful in your environment. So, you know, if you want to do values or, or, or soft skill interviews, like do it, but just be, I think you're kind of playing more with fire than you would like to. And you, you really need to think thoroughly about what the soft skills are that, you know, at their extreme will, you know, what, what will that lead to in your culture? One other thought I have on soft skills, it gets back to some of the earlier pieces we were talking about of the must-haves and tying the rubric to the must-haves. I think sometimes there are must-haves that really are soft skills. I'll give an example. 
Uh, you could argue that storytelling and kind of strong communication are sort of softer skills. Uh, that is a must have for every product role I've ever hired for. So, you know, we'll tell uh, PMs who are interviewing, hey, a big part of this you know, group presentation you're doing is our ability for to understand the story, to stick with you, to follow it, to understand the impact you had. Uh, we expect, you know, PMs at Segment to be incredible storytellers and to kind of gather folks cross-functionally, gather customers in, get customers excited. And so that would be an example of a soft skill that is just mission critical for the role. And I think uh, some soft skills that, uh, you know, might be part of like the general culture might not make as much sense for a particular role. And, you know, I think it's just back to this critical thinking about like, what is it that we're looking for? And let's not just copy paste like what we did when we hired X other person or Y other person or Z other person at the company. Let's really think about what this role needs. And uh, sometimes it needs a bunch of soft skills. Sometimes it's actually a little bit less important. And I think uh, that's just a, a really important variable that you can kind of iron out early in the job kit um, before you start hiring or uh, interviewing a bunch of people. Super interesting discussion there. Um, before we kind of go into a handful of quick rapid fire questions, I'm curious if you guys have anything else to share or thoughts around just job kits in general, rubrics or interviewing that you feel like we didn't touch upon. I think maybe the the one other thing I'll, I'll say is just like, it is a daunting process coming up with these job kits, especially for the first couple of times you do it. Uh, I would really, just like you would sort of test like a product idea with some customers, I would really take your job kit and I'd bring it to a couple of folks within the company that you really trust that you think are like amazing hirers or someone else, uh, you know, a mentor outside of the company and really just get some honest feedback and some like direct feedback about like what could be better about this job kit? What could be better about the pitch? Do these must haves seem really on point for the role? Does this rubric as sharp as it, as it could be? Um, I think it's one of those things that can really be like a collaborative team sport uh, with people who are really good at hiring and just any improvements you make there very early before you start pouring a ton of hours into the hiring process for this role, uh, the better. And so I just try to figure out like, who are the people around you that could really sharpen this? Maybe your, your VCs, um, but like, who are the people who are really good at this, who could help make this 20% sharper? That will save you tens, if not more hours uh, down the line, uh, and you'll get better hires out of mm -hmm. it too. Mm -hmm. John, did anything final to add there? Yeah, I think I've, I think I've gone on enough rants. <laughs> enough plus one content for me. Okay, a couple quick, quick rapid fire. So I'll just ask a question. Tito, maybe you answer first, then John and and then uh, just first thing that comes to your mind. Sounds um, good. What is your favorite interview question to ask? I do a, uh, what I call the career interview. Uh, it was adapted from an interview that Jean-Denis and I did around uh, at Dropbox that we call the all around. Uh, and I love this interview. It's like really, it's sort of like asking, can you walk me through your last three performance reviews without actually asking that question? Mm. Uh, so imagine like all of the questions you would uh, roughly ask to get the answer to that without asking the question. Uh, I find that to be very, very uh, illuminating uh, just to understand where someone's at in their career, what their traje trajectory over the last couple of years has looked like. Uh, and so my hiring manager screen when I'm opening, opening a new role is almost always some variant of that career interview uh, question. Great. 
Yeah, I ask people for a success that wouldn't have happened without them. Um, basically, a, something that went really well, either as a, mostly I interview managers, like a project that that went really, really well because of what they specifically did to to make it successful. And um, it's super, it's you know, it's super interesting. And then I do five whys, mm. like you know, to to make sure. I understand the boundary between like what they did and what their team members did. And, and, and for, for managers, like I, I think you, you generally quickly get to the limit of what people know, right? And that's normal. You want that. And you want people to start to admit when you know they have to rely on a senior person or hey, that was the PM's job or I inherited this part of the work. Um, and I, I really like it because I think it's an interview where I, I frame it in terms of them making themselves look as good as possible. And so I give them a chance to take something they really consider a great success in, in their career. But then the the whys like really helps me get to, to the boundary of their contributions. Um, so. If you could only ask one question in a reference call, what question would that be? Uh, what percentile is this person? Would you say this person is a top 50, 70, 80, 90 percentile performer? And I, I have like a, I ask that after asking a lot of like really nice questions and I just drop it. Like, <laughs> is this, is the person top 70, 80 or 90th percentile? And you, it, you can tell a lot in terms of the, how many seconds it takes for someone to answer and then what the number that they come out with is. And I, I would guess Tito's is the same or some variant thereof. Uh, yeah. Mine, uh, I try to get a little bit of understanding of like the org structure that, so if this was their manager, how many other reports they had, try to like get a feel for like some of the other names. And then I ask uh, stack rank, which is the same, um, same general concept as percentile is like, oh, is this, you know, person like top two compared to all of those people we just talked about? Like what, what made them top two or what made them not top two? Uh, but yeah, just really trying. It's just so easy to say nice platitudes for 45 minutes and what you're really trying to understand is uh, what their last performance review looked like, uh, which again, you can't quite ask that question, but you can figure out ways to roughly get that information politely. Nice. nice. Okay, two quick last questions. Um, if you could hire or work with any fictional character, who would it be? Whoa, I wasn't ready for this. <laughs> uh, so I'm really excited about Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is... Uh, my favorite character in any TV show. And I like to think that I model myself after Ted Lasso's uh, <laughs> career. So I would want to work with Ted Lasso to see what I could learn from him. No, is, no, is, that, that, is, that is not. Oh, wow. Sorry to offend you. No, no, it doesn't offend me. I just, I know you as a, you, you couldn't deal with Ted Lasso. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Because he's just, he's too much of an idiot. You would just, just, his head would explode. No, no, I love him. Oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer to this one. I guess we can skip that one. Then the last question I was just best interviewer you know and what makes them great? Dominique. She's the best interviewer I know. I think my CEO right now, Zach Perret, I'm not sucking up, but he's a, he's a, he's a really good interviewer. Um, 
although I wouldn't say his like criteria is super objective. This is the problem when you get to very senior hires, Jeremy, like when CEOs are hiring people, it's difficult for everyone to stick to the to the job kit. But I think he's he's been right a lot. And he's very good. It's not just interviewer, he's very good at holding the bar really high. Like it's really easy with senior hiring, it's very easy to it's just so hard, you know, it's very easy to not hire somebody for like 12 months, 15 months, and you lose track of what it is you're looking for, mm. right? Or you lose, you know, you start to compare to the last few candidates, you know, you you don't have, he has like an amazing absolute bar. And I think great founders, I mean, you'll find a lot of great founders for a long time. They know their responsibility is to get the team to be the right team for the job, right? And, and if they start compromising on that, like, you know, everyone will start compromising on that. I think he's, he's been world-class at that. At I actually think uh, Ilya Bolodarsky, he was uh, one of the co-founders of Segment. I learned more. He, he didn't actually do a ton of hiring at Segment. He was sort of the skunk works guy who would, you know, occasionally hire a couple of roles, but he wasn't in a large org management type role. Um, but I learned a ton about hiring from him. He would always just ask himself, like, what needs to get done here? And then like, what is the one, the most efficient one to two hour, like mini project or, uh, you know, interview question or like story that they could tell. And he would just get to like the core of what he was looking for in a really simple and elegant way. And uh, I was just really respected sort of the clarity of thought and like the synthesis down into like a really clever exercise that uh, he was consistently able to, to do and really hired some of the most, um, epic people at, at segment because of that. Awesome. Um, no, go ahead. No, I was gonna, this is a lame answer, but the, the founder, like the person I would love to hire, the, the person I'd love to work with the most, honestly, in my life is the people who have, who have surmounted like a, a seismic shift in their product and market and gotten it to be successful. And so, mm -hmm. uh, and I was thinking like someone like Andy Grove and like Intel going from getting their ass kicked by Japanese chip manufacturers in the 1980s to not like people like that. Cause I think for me, the hardest thing with like a, a, a big business of, of any kind is how do you change it? Or like Satya, right? Like how do you change a thing that involves hundreds, if not thousands or 10,000s of people and mm -hmm. like re renew the DNA, like, like, change what the focus is, like totally jump tracks to, to, to something that is different. Um, that's the, for me always been as a leader, like even small versions of that are really hard. I'm like, okay, at it. I would, I would love to, to hire somebody who is world-class at that and see how they do it. Awesome. I know we are out of time, but this is honestly a really great conversation and I learn a lot. Thank you so, so much guys. Our pleasure.